every issue that shows up in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, the author of the novel Love Marriage. And I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. Speaking of novels, Whitney, how much money did you get for your first book? The um, Gigantic Piles? Oh, come on. <laughs> Tell the truth. Tell me what you did with the advance. What did you do we with the advance? We don't discuss this. Say it. Say it. Talk about it. Talk it's about a Midwestern money. thing. My God. All right, here. I will tell you this. I I very responsibly invested all of the money I got from my first book in the stock market right around 1999. Oops. So uh, may that be a lesson to you folks for doing something responsible with your advances. What about you? What, what did you do with your advance for love marriage? Oh, you know me. I bought eight brand new Ferraris. Oh, yeah. Was it one of those that kept uh, having its battery run out last <laughs> winter over and over again? It's, it's like this really good matchbox car series oh, that I okay. really committed yeah. to hard. Exactly. I find it difficult. I find it hard to imagine you with a Ferrari. I'm sorry. Oh, why is that so hard to believe? Emma Klein got a $2 million advance for her debut novel, The Girls. You don't think Love Marriage is a $2 million advance book? I just don't. I'm not saying that your book and hers are not comparable. I'm saying that it is hard for me to imagine you wanting a Ferrari. How about that? All right. What we do want to talk about today is how you get a Ferrari if you're an author, and that's a book advance, a really big blockbuster book advance. Later on in the show, Arthur Phillips will join us to talk about the book advances from an author's perspective. But first up, we have Oscar Vielon to shed some light on the topic from the perspective of a critic. Oscar is the managing editor of Ziziva, contributing editor for Literary Hub, our favorite website former books editor for the San Francisco Chronicle and board member of the National Book Critics Circle and our first ever repeat fiction nonfiction guest. Welcome back to the podcast, Oscar. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy to know that. Maybe I'll get a t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> we need some swag. We don't have any yet. We're going to get a I would happily wear your swag. <laughs> All right. We're doing an ABCs of like the economics of book publishing if in this episode because we're all sick of talking about Trump. Uh, so for our listeners' sake, could you just start with the basics? Like, what is a book advance? Why does the publishing industry work on advances? How do these advances get decided on? You know, could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So an advance is exactly what it sounds like. The same way, like, let's say if you had to go to your boss and say, I need advance on my wages, um, it's pretty much the same thing. So what that is, is a set amount of money that the publisher basically gives to the prospective author um, before the book is ever published. Now, um, to get back a little bit to more about how those advances work, that's essentially what, what it is, right? And uh, uh, who decides on what the advance will be, that's usually two people involved in here. There's the publisher and your agent or yourself. It depends on the, uh, on, on the publishing house. But that's going to be hashed out between them. And the idea essentially is how many people do they think are going to buy this book? And based on how many people they think will buy this book, that's what you argue the advance should be. My memory was that, like, I think my first editor told me, Ray Roberts, told me about, mm -hmm. like, that he would put together an entire proposal that would be like, all right, here's how we're going to make the money back for this advance. Here's how many books I expect to sell. Here's where we expect to sell foreign rights. Like, they have to put a whole package together and then show it to all the other editors at the publishing house and get their approval to buy a book. 
That's right. And, yeah. you know, in, in those proposals, too, the agent will probably lay out what they call comps, right? So this is um, this book is comparable to this com- book, and it sold X. Right. You know? But it's all, I mean, it's all pro- prognostication. I mean, this is essentially what it is. It's like, you know, you're, you're, you're hoping on past performances of other books, and this is assuming your first-time uh, published author, okay? This is assuming you've never published anything before. You're 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 going on, you know, uh, past performances, trying to make, uh, you know, uh, future uh, uh, performances. You know, this is the sort of thing they add uh, in the in the fine print when you you know uh, buy four hundred one k or a mutual fund. You know, uh, <laughs> so just to let you know, sometimes it doesn't work out that way. Um, you know, but anyway, so so yes. So it, I was going to say though, the thing about the advances that the people should know, of course, is that that set amount that you get from your publisher um, is the only money you're going to get until the advance earns out, right? And what do we mean by that? By earning out means that you sell enough books and you sell uh, enough books through your percentage of royalties. What percent of the sales price per book that you earn? I forget what the standard is. Is it like fifteen percent, or I can't remember. It's usually, it's ten percent for okay. the first five thousand. That's right, and then it goes up to like thirteen percent. And I think once you sell some sort of huge amount, it's then it and then it's a flat fifteen. Right. And that's of course that's for usually that's standard that's first time uh, uh, authors which expect something like that. Obviously, if you're a huge name, if you're a James Patterson or something like that, your royalty rates are much much more favorable. So I mean, in, it, to earn out a fifty thousand dollar advance, you got to imagine taking ten percent of a twenty five dollar hardcover or ten percent of a fourteen dollar p- paperback and adding that number of books up to get to that number. Basically, that's right. That's right. And until you do that, you do not earn another dime. No royalties are due at this time. (laughs) Uh, It's just a sad refrain. Anyway, so a a lot of my students, of course, hope to publish books of their own eventually. And on their more optimistic days, they ask me, you know, this, the legendary advance, uh, you know, how much should they expect their first book to fetch? And, I wonder if there's such a thing as an average advance. You know, there's the famous advances, J.K. Rowling getting 2,000 pounds for the first two Harry Potter books, and the Obamas just sold their memoirs for $65 million. What do you think is the average, if there is one? I I think the average is probably the same average I heard back in like 90, 1998, which was the average I think I heard in 2008. And I'm guessing it's probably still the averages today. Um, for a first-time author, for a work of fiction, I think the average is somewhere between, let's say, five and ten thousand dollars. Oh, really? Something. It's that low? I didn't know that. Yeah, if yeah, absolutely. For a first-time work of fiction, absolutely. That's huh. um, you know, um, if it's if, if it's a work of nonfiction, it's much more. You can get a lot more money, but for yeah. first time, yeah, if you're. And that's including not, everything, like you're including, like, so you're including university presses or smaller presses and then the yeah, yeah. big New York average. presses. This is the average, right? Okay. Absolutely, this is the average. It could, you know, I mean, it could actually be much lower depending on where you go. Some places it might be, you might get 2500 or $2,000 as an advance for your first time novel, for a first novel or a first story collection. And of course, as we know, there's the anomalies. You might get $2 million, you know, for, for that. So on average, I think it averages out to something like that, you know, and that makes sense too, because when we talk about the average advance, 
You know, a lot of the books that are being published are not being published by uh, uh, the huge houses, right? The huge houses that can afford the $2 million advances. They're being published by a lot more um, uh, modest publishing concerns. And, you know, these places are not loaded with money. I dare say a lot of them are nonprofits. And for them, you know, it's going to be more reasonable to to give the writer as much as they can. But that, you know, that's going to fit with whatever their whether their budget is and what their mission is. So it's going to be something pretty modest. But then, of course, this raises a whole other question, which we can get to later. You know, um, why are you publishing this book and why do you feel you must pay two million dollars for this book? It seems like there are high profile deals all the time. Of course, those are the ones that make the news. But. Pretty frequently, there are seven-figure deals for politicians like the Clintons or celebrities like Bruce Springsteen and multi-book deals by genre fiction writers. And even some debut literary authors get huge advances. Um, I mentioned Emma Klein's 2016 novel, The Girls, earlier. There's also Whitney Scherer's The Age of Light or, yeah, Jesse's Homegoing. And just this summer, a $2 million deal for a recent MFA graduate, Lara Prescott, whose debut novel is about Dr. Zhivago. We've talked before on the show about how the market for literary fiction is shrinking. The Times ran a really compelling slash totally terrifying article about that, which I think maybe was by Alexander Alter. Wait, is that right? So, Oscar, I'm curious what you think the rationale is behind publishers offering these massive advances. Right. So I think before we can answer that, let's figure out the uh, the, the raison d'etre for, let's say, a um, a Viking or you know a random house. Right. You are trying to publish uh, books that are going to reach the widest audience possible. Now it's not a perfect uh, uh, analogy, but they are like. Hollywood studios, the big Hollywood studios, right? So I want to produce something of a certain quality, hopefully of a high quality, but I also think is going to cut across all these kind of demos or at least, you know, find a very passionate um, readership among a certain group of people, which I think there might be millions, okay? So uh, given that, then I'm going to try to find a work to do that. So it's high stakes, high rewards. So, you know, therefore I'm willing to pay two million dollars for this work now that doesn't you know i think one of the problems with with understanding advances is somehow that the the amount of money attached to an advance has some sort of um some sort of metric as to how good shall we say the book is now here's me talking as a critic right Mm -hmm. Uh, that's why you're here oscar you must talk as a critic (laughs) of course zero correlation between those things (laughs) Um, any more than there would be between a you know big, big budget Hollywood film and whether or not it's going to be a movie we're going to even still be talking about in five or ten years. There's zero correlation. But hold on. Right? I mean, that's not how it gets presented in the press because I went back and printed out articles about uh, you know some of the big uh, debuts, including the ones that Sugi mentioned, but also like Garth Risk Hallberg's uh, – mm-hmm book City on Fire and and what you notice is that when there's a an auction for a book right meaning that there are many of the major houses are bidding on it right mm-hmm. it means that a bunch of editors are also even if they don't end up buying the book committing to the idea that the book is good i feel like it translates into people thinking that the book is good because it was bought for a lot of money sure well, look, it, there was a lot of people who thought that Dances with Wolves uh, like deserved eight Oscars. Okay. But, you know, I mean, what can I tell you? <laughs> well, it did you know? get eight Oscars. So, I mean, surely the people who made it well, were happy in the end. One of the best films ever made, clearly. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> 
there's, so and I'm not knocking it because there's a lot to be said for entertainment. There's a lot to be said for something that uh, gives us as a literary culture a touchstone on which, you know, we can, for, for all of us or something, a, a, a title we can all talk about in somewhere or another. I think that's good. OK, but now think about this. So if that is what you do, that is that is the, the reason for your publishing house. Well, so what does a huge advance do? Well, it does a couple of things. Right. Well, one, uh, we're talking about it. So right off yeah. the bat, you acquired this this title and you pay X amount. And now there's buzz. There's publicity for this thing before it even comes out. Which means that when it does finally come out, people are going to want to know, well, is this worth a $2 million advance or whatever you want, you know, however you want to frame it? And the chances of coverage are going to be very high. Do you think that editors sometimes – I look, I have heard this off the record on the DL, and I'm not going to say which books this is about, from, from writers who knew about a deal saying like, look, the editor deliberately paid – uh, got got into the million dollar range for that advance because they knew it would bring a lot of attention to the book. Like they know they're overpaying, but it's a way of creating advanced publicity. Sure, that makes sense. Okay. I mean, I wouldn't doubt that at all. And also remember this too. Um, you know, this is also uh, uh, an economy of scale. What do I mean by that? If you're going to pay millions for a book, you're going to publish hundreds and thousands, if not millions of copies of this book, Right. So what does that do to your cost per unit? Your cost per unit drops enormously, right? So even if you're selling this thing, you know, for like, let's say $25, where your cost per unit is going to be something like what it is for a much smaller press with a much smaller run, let's say where you only publish 10,000 copies of the book. Now, if you publish 250,000 copies of the book, your price per unit is pretty damn low. So suddenly it's not like you're losing all that much if the thing doesn't work out because, you know, I only have to sell – X amount of copies from my end as the publisher, right? As the publisher. I paid $2 million for the advance. Now I'm going to look into what this is going to cost me in terms of the actual production costs and then, you know, um, how many hours people have to sink into this to promote the book, edit it, etc. The more you do, I mean, the cheaper it gets. So suddenly, I mean, here's the thing too. It's like, well, you know, uh, let's say it, it's, uh, it costs you, you know, see, the, the $2 million and it never earns out, right? But let's say it comes close. Maybe it, it, it comes to about, let's say, a million and a half of the, of, of the, um, of the two million, okay? Well, you start you know, doing the math. You start looking at it. Well, you know, that's not the worst thing, you know, especially since, uh, you know, our production on this was kind of, you know, somewhat low because we printed so many copies. Um, it did well enough because two million, I mean, turn out that's an ungodly sum of books you got to sell. But you still have to sell a lot of books. If you could come to sell a million dollars worth of books, that's a lot of books. Plus, there's a difference between the publisher earning out, in other words, making a profit on the $2 million advance, and the writer earning out and getting to the profits, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because remember, now, the thing that's going on the publishing house, too, is I have a backlist. So I have money coming in from that, regardless, from books that we gambled on that did really, really well over the course of many, many years, and that every time we sell it, that's that's basically, you know, um, it's not quite free money, but it's, you know, it's like a, like a growth on, on interest, right, that's going to help out the company. And I have other titles out there, too. You know, you do like you do like risk management. You're figuring out, okay, well, we do this big one, and I have these other books coming out here, too, and then things happen. For the house, too, there might be the one title, as we know, who the, comes in under the radar and becomes a mega bestseller. You see what I'm saying? So it kind of evens out the house 
if the house is well run, the house does well. Because you can't keep doing this and be wrong. You're going to go out of business. So maybe rather than thinking about it as overpaying, we can think about it as it looks like paying for one thing, but it's actually paying for multiple things. Absolutely. Because now, look, it also raises the visibility of the house saying, well, this is where you go. If you want, you know, we publish what we think are the most premium authors in the country, if not the world. And so you see that has a certain brand association with it. You know, I think um, the question to ask at this point is, well, at least regarding the houses, is that they must know what they're doing, because if you keep doing this over and over again, and there isn't a method to your madness, you're going to be out of business. <laughs> it's interesting about that branding of a house as a place that's willing to spend a lot of money. I mean, I, I, I uh, Kanaf uh, published three of the books that we had on that list. They published Homegoing and the Hallberg book and the Laura Prescott yeah. book. Yeah. Um, and it, it was interesting to me because back when I when I uh, sold my first novel. Um, and it was a, it was kind of a big deal because there were in Kansas City there really wasn't anyone publishing with a New York publisher at the time and so the star called mm-hmm. me up and wanted to talk about it and how how much did you, did they buy the book for and I told them and the next day my my, my editor my editor called me and he's like we do not talk about that oh yes we do not talk <laughs> about oh, that Whitney. but look these advances are in Publishers Weekly now every time a book deal goes down so it seems to me like something has changed in the literary culture from that time you know which was late that would have been 2001 to now when 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 these things are are, are advertised when it, uh, how much money is spent on a book or has it always been that way I think mean, for anyone who read the trades, I think it was always that way. Okay, but I think you know you have to throw in things there. Just the um, how many, how many more uh, venues about publishing there are available to us, especially online. So there's ways to find out. You know, then we're not I mean, throwing in there stuff like social media. You know, where you could freely share this information. I guess it's, so. Want. Publishers Weekly and Publishers Lunch are subscription only, and that's the only way that where you would when you say the trades. Is that what you're talking about? Just yeah, for people who aren't yeah. familiar with that. So it used to be, though, that you would have to actually have a subscription to the magazine. It would come to your house, and then you could read it there. But now th- those things get disseminated on the Internet almost immediately. And there's also, I mean, there's code built into those trades, too, right? Um, mm. A good deal, a very good deal, a major deal, <laughs> a significant deal, a deal that you want to call your mom about, a deal that you want to call yeah. your mom and your tie your extended family about. You know, I think it's just sort of there. there was this sort of code that – um, I remember I remember learning it because I started reading the trades and what I think they're maybe they're free on the one of them is free on the day that the news is published and then the archives become subscription. And I was trying to understand what was happening. And so I found some sort of I found the some explanation for that and, and started understanding what the actual numbers attached to all those categories are, except for the last last two that I mentioned, for those of our listeners who might not know this, I mean, those are all actual terms that are attached to deals. A very a good deal, a very good deal, a major deal, a significant deal, um, all refer to actual brackets. And so they put deals into a range, um, into a financial range. And when some someone says a good deal, it might mean um, a very specific thing, but you'd have to know the code to be able to read it. But do they still do that, or is that the old way? It's, I don't read the trades now, but it seems to me like when I see somebody spread, you know, m- posting a notice, and often it's the author themselves, like the dollar figure is just right there. Let let us not again uh, forget the function of the of announcing specifically high uh, advances that it creates buzz it creates publicity you know i mean if, if i think if you got 
like four million dollars for like the next two novels. That is something that's going to get out there regardless, right? Um, in fact, I'm pretty sure your publisher is going to want to get it out there regardless because you want to again, you know, build buzz. You want to build at least anticipation on people as to what this is going to look like. What is it that this house has sunk so much money in, and you know, what's the what's the quality of this work going to be? I think it gets a little bit more. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Discreet when you start dropping several zeros. Okay. Um, you know, from that because then it's sort of well, you know, I mean. Uh, you know, $20,000 advance is lovely. It's absolutely lovely, but is it something that the world has to know about? Probably not, you know? So how often do these big-time advances pay off? Are there any specific cases that you think of as successes in this regard? We were thinking of Tom Wolfe's Back to Blood. He left FSG for a $7 million advance from Little Brown, and then the book tanks. So there are those cases, too, where a book becomes sometimes unfairly, to my mind, better known for not earning out or not deserving the publicity that it's, that it's advanced gained it. Um, I remember people used to talk about Ben Kunkel's indecision, I think, in this, in this oh, vein sure. as well. Um, not to be too much of a criminologist, because I don't think it's hardly ever announced when they say, hey, this never earned out. I don't think they ever uh, they talk about that. But I think you just have to see, like, basically, okay, how much did they pay for this, and how long was this on the bestseller list? If you, if you did some digging, some homework, you kind of suss it out and figure out whether or not this made its money. Another fairly good sign that that a huge advance earned out is that that person gets another huge advance after that after that first book. That that usually will tell you. But I mean, for the most part, they don't earn out. I mean, it's very difficult to earn out on a $2 million, $3 million, $4 million contract on a first-time book. I remember hearing a story from uh, my former professor and now friend, John McPhee. And John, like, uh, he didn't ever have an agent. And he was published his whole life by by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. And he would just kind of, like, take whatever, you know? Like, it wasn't... (laughs) I I just, I think... Oh, my God. No, he said that he specifically (laughs) did not like getting large advances, right? John was a pretty modest liver, you know? I mean, and and he got paid for writing for The New Yorker, and he did not, you know, he was not interested in getting a large advance. And here's his rationale for this was, you know, that... um it let him write whatever he wanted to write. It took the pressure off, and he more often made his publisher happy. And he would tell a story about how, um, you know, he had a book come out the same year as, as Tom Wolfe's A Man in Full, while we're talking about Tom Wolfe. And Wolfe had gotten paid a ton for A Man in Full, which is a book that's set in Atlanta and was kind of like the follow-up to Bonfire of the Vanities. And that book did not do that well, right? It got remaindered pretty quickly. I remember seeing copies of it floating around, you know, like it just it just didn't take off. But John's book, which is, you know, would have seemed to be much less commercial because it was a compendium of all of his books about geology, <laughs> about the geology of mm-hmm. the geological history of the United States. And it was called The Annals of the Former World. You know, it ended up winning the Pulitzer Prize. Now, and so he totally earned out and, and, and is, you know, felt like everyone at FSD was so happy with him, whereas they were kind of pissed at, at Wolf for, you know, demanding so much money and then not making it, you know. Yeah, that, that's, you know, this is why John McPhee is John McPhee. Um, 
again, there's that corollary to the Hollywood uh, 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 studio system. You know, when you make the low budget movie, when you make the B movie, the studios get out of your hair because you're not using up as much of their resources. So artistically, you can do more of what you like because lower risk, right? Right. Um, so that makes sense. I think with McPhee's scene. Also, though, it makes sense too in terms of, well, you know, why are you writing? What is it? What are your concerns? What is it that you're trying to explain to yourself? And often, what that may be may not have an obvious commercial angle. In fact, much of literature doesn't. You know, <laughs> uh, if you think of Jason Epstein's book, I think it's called Book Business. It came out some years ago, where he lays out his own experiences. You know, as a publisher, he's very makes it quite clear. Look, before this got huge, before the Bertelsmans and, and the Hushettes, this is a cottage industry. This is, you know, almost all advances were small because there was not a lot of money. The idea was to build. A backlist, or let's just say the idea was in you know, new directions of this, certainly. I think it was a James Merrill uh, over there, where they would say, okay, let's find what we think is the most important work out there, and we'll publish it, and probably no one's going to buy it at first. But we believe so strongly in the quality of this work, we think eventually an audience will come around, and that this will not necessarily sell millions of copies, but will sustain itself. And, you know, uh, we'll sustain the house because we'll have this backlist of these incredible titles and they will sell strongly enough year after year after year to keep us going and to help us acquire more books. And if we happen to find one that sells a million copies, wonderful. What a great windfall. But that's not how we do it because we don't, you know, that's just not what we're about. Right. Um, McPhee is kind of like in that in that vein, I think, in terms of his thinking of, as a career. Um, I would say one more thing. to I think you know, one of the th- things that this sort of brings up with what you're saying uh, 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 what, is that, you know, the implication is that this could have a negative impact on the career of a of a of an emerging writer. They're taking a huge advance, right? Because all the pressure that comes with that money, the pressure to succeed, the pressure to make a name for yourself, the pressure to maybe produce a book that's meant to sell rather than the book that you wanted to write. This brings maybe perfectly to the question I was going to ask. I mean, what do you think about the culture of the blockbuster advance? Is it ultimately helpful or harmful? Because what you just said makes me... So nostalgic for the kind of reading I remember as a kid, which of course had lots of problems in terms of, you know, we we spoke in our last episode about um, changing levels of inclusivity uh, for, say, uh, marginalized communities on prize lists, et cetera, who was getting published, et cetera, et cetera. But I do also remember as a kid kind of wandering through the library with the sense that the books were some of the books had been there for many years, had been checked out again and again, loved over and over again, just sort of not just in the year that they came out, but with a kind of long-term life that I'm not sure is attaching itself to as many books now. And I wonder how the culture of the blockbuster advance plays into that. I mean, not that it's so new, but it seems to be more and more a thing that is pushing certain books into extremes. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how the culture of reading and liter- literary culture at large is responding to that blockbuster advance, what you th- what you think of it. Well, I think, you know, uh, pop culture is, is a thing to itself. And I think once you start 
publishing, you know, um, books with a huge advance. You're you're really trying to say we're trying to to reach the le- level of pop culture here, not so much literary culture, pop culture. Right? I totally agree, and it's so interesting because you look at the articles I looked up on Vulture. Vulture is really good about writing about large advances, and they'll do a thing like, "Here's everything we know about Garth Risk Hallberg's 900 page, two million dollar debut novel," and then it'll just list a bunch of like trivia about him as if he were like a movie star. Mm-hmm. You know, so yes, yeah. it seems very poppy. Yeah, so. Because of that, I, I say, you know, give unto Caesar what is Caesar. You know, so be it. <laughs> so be it. Um, but what I would say, I mean, for me, you know, my only concern is that somehow this has, you know, a crippling effect on the career of a young writer. Or not even sincerely a young writer, someone who's just starting as a writer, okay? And what this could mean for them in terms of how they perceive themselves and their work. Now, a lot of this is just would be based on the type of person you're talking about and why he or she wants to do this thing, why she's called to this vocation. But in general, if you, I think if you're a, a young emerging writer and you're very serious about your craft and you're serious about this thing that we all do, this literary culture in which we all engage in, and if someone wants to give you $2 million, take it. Just <laughs> take it. I'll tell you why. Because even if it doesn't earn out, who cares? Just write the best book you can write. Because even if, even if it doesn't earn out, if you wrote a really good book, we will remember you wrote a really good book, regardless of whether or not it sold, made the $2 million, right? That's the publisher's concern. That's not my concern as a critic, and nor should be anyone's concern as a reader. And then, you know, so what? You'll never get another $2 million advance. You got $2 million, you got $2 million, for goodness sakes. You know, you can, uh, I think, uh, figure out a way to parcel out that money so you can keep writing and make, you know, writing the books you want to. This is a, this is a windfall. And that's how I would view it. You know, mm-hmm. take it as a windfall. But if you're taking it in a sense of, like, I have arrived, suddenly now where's my brownstone? I need to buy that. <laughs> um, I would strongly caution uh, 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 against that, uh, falling into that trap of, of self-satisfaction. Because if it doesn't run out the $2 million, your sense of self is going to be shattered. Right. It's funny, and listening to you say, you made $2 million, of course I'm feeling a little wistful, like, oh, I wish I had made $2 million. But <laughs> I think that what you're saying about it being pop culture and what you were saying, too, connects, I think, for me in some ways to how the culture of reading has become more focused on who the author is sometimes than what the book itself actually contains. Um, A thing that I think I probably unfairly blame on new historicism, but, um, (laughs) you know, I just sort of feel like there's this culture of building celebrity around writers. And the thing that I loved about reading as a kid was actually that I did not give a hang who the writer was. I just wanted to check out the next book and check out the next book and check out the next book. And, um, that is the thing that I end up feeling nostalgic for. And and Oscar, I wonder, I think that you've given me a really nice way to think about how the person who's offered the $2 million can take it and think really carefully about how also to keep themselves. Um, Sam Chang gave this great speech last year about um, protecting your inner life. And I think in some ways what we're talking about today really connects to that. How do you protect your your inner life and your creativity and also take the money that makes it possible for you to keep being creative, um, which is a thing I think that a lot of writers struggle with. Yeah, I think so too. I think what it, 
I think the better you know the community in which you operate, I think the the more you can get your head straight as to what this is all about. Because then you start realizing things like, you know, well, I mean, to get a $2 million advance, let's say, or whatever, half a million, 750000 whatever. Yeah, I'd take uh, that. It's, 750 right. <laughs> That's you know, fine. You, you, you're, you're, it's, it's, it's a blessing. It's a blessing. There are a lot of people who are struggling. There are a lot of people writing fantastic books who don't get that opportunity. And, you know, one should approach it with some humility. I just always go back to uh, reading a lot of Faulkner's letters when I was younger and how often he was asking for money and looking at his advances, which were rarely above Hmm. $5,000. And, you know, uh, if you look at at his publisher now, given how many of his books have been sold over the years, it's like investing in a blue chip company instead of like an Internet stock, right? He's Mm -hmm. sold and sold and sold over the years. And so the people who are getting the huge advances in his time frame are long gone and forgotten, and nobody's making any money off of those books. And yet his books continue to sell. There you go. I mean, that's look, you know, that's the thing. What does the advance tell us? The advance only tells you that there's someone who thinks they could sell X amount of this book. Right. That's all that that really means. Okay. And sometimes they're right. And most often they're wrong. Okay. But, but that's neither here nor there for you as the writers is you are trying to write the best book you can write. That is it. I mean, we talked about what's the point of an advance. Well, the other point of the advance is that so you can either cut back your hours on your job or perhaps even quit your job so you can focus on your work. You know, that's part of what the advance does. If it's a huge advance, especially now you can say, that's it. I'm buckling down. I'm going to write this book because, as you know, you, know, you don't get the advance all at once. You get, you know, the, when you sign the contract, then you get a chunk when you deliver the manuscript. And usually you get another chunk once it's published. So you know, it doled out. They don't give you the whole thing up front. You know, so use this, you know. Write the best thing you can write because no one ever knows. No one ever knows what is going to be lasting, not only the sense of, of, of what we would call art, but also what's going to have legs in terms of commercial success. You know, Bukowski did pretty damn well. Right? Bukowski did really well for Black Sparrow Press. I bet James Baldwin would like to come back for, you know, I like can get an advance and then over the oh. last three years, you know, collect some oh. royalties. I. Seven figures, easy. Seven <laughs> figures, easy. You know, just the media tour would be phenomenal. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining us, Oscar. This has been a great conversation. We really appreciate your sharing the big picture with us. Well, you're most welcome, and I, and I hope I'm, I have not misled anyone. <laughs> Thanks, Oscar. And now we're joined by Arthur Phillips. Arthur has written many acclaimed novels, including Prague, which won the L.A. Times Art Seidenbaum Award for Best First Novel, The Egyptologist, which was an international bestseller, and The Tragedy of Arthur, which was shortlisted for the International Impact Dublin Literary Award. He's also written for the series Bloodline and Damages. Welcome to the show, Arthur. Thank you very much. Arthur. is your first-time caller. Uh, all right. So I remember Prague coming out, uh, which it, uh, came out in 2002, your first novel, and it was such a huge hit. And people just loved that book. I, I love the book. Um, the novel follows an expats in Budapest. What was it like to have a, a novel? I mean, I, you know, everyone thinks, oh, this is what's going to happen to you. But it very often, rarely do first novels take off like that. You know, so what was that experience like? And could you maybe talk about how it affected you as a writer? 
Well, I mean, you know, as it, it's it's like winning a lottery. There's no really good reason for something like that to happen. Um, well, it has to be I, a good book. I don't think that. Well, maybe not. I maybe I can think mm. of other examples where. It, but yours was. I mean. Well, thank you. You know. Um, you know. Yeah. Of course, everybody wants that to happen. I, I think. I don't think I'm kidding myself in retrospect when I say I was pretty convinced that nothing like that was going to happen. At least when I was writing it. It took, a, you know, it took me about four years to write. I was, you know, doing other jobs at the same time. And it just was a hobby that I really, really liked. And I thought I was good at it. But it, it didn't really seem plausible to me that it would get published or that if it did, it would be worth any money or if that even happened that they wouldn't notice. You know, I spend a lot of time in bookstores and it doesn't feel like we need more books when you're in a bookstore. So it, everything that happened with that book was was amazing, but it, it really felt like just gallons of icing on, on the experience of writing, I think. I may be a little looking back with rose-colored glasses, but I really do think that's how I felt about it. Well, I, I just wonder if there was a moment when you were, when you realized, oh my God, this book is going to take off like way more than I imagined it was going to. Um, you, you know, <laughs> so I, I know you guys just had this nice conversation about advances and stuff. So when I to my amazement, got a, an advance that I really enjoyed. Um, <laughs> one of the things that happens is you think, oh, well, now everything that will follow from that are huge numbers. Like, everybody's going to buy this. It's going to be a movie, and it's going to be on the New York Times bestseller list, and this and that. And none of those things happened. So from one perspective, you know, it was nothing but disappointment. <laughs> um, all the things that you could imagine happening, or lots of things I could imagine, I mean, didn't happen. So... I, I was I was having a ton of fun, um, and I got to go on tour, and you know I got to go to my hometown and my parents. Of course, my book event in my parents' town was a much bigger deal than anywhere else on earth. Um, <laughs> it was a, it was a pleasure and a joy, but but there's there is a certain like um, if you think about if you think about the numbers about anything, how much your advance is, how high it climbs up in sales charts how long it seems to be on, you know, uh, in print. I mean, any number is disappointing. I, I don't think there's any way around that for somebody of a certain personality. Like, Would that be your personality, enough, Arthur? It, it might very well be. And I, I've gotten over it a little bit, but there really isn't enough of any uh, numerical payoff if you start to get excited about them, really. It always comes back to, boy, I better like sitting down to write. And especially by the time... Of, a book comes out, in, at least for me for many, many years, I was on to the next book. So my heart was really like, I hope I can write a good sentence tomorrow. And that, and so that when the stuff that was being published was happening, it was like, well, that's great. This is like a party, but I better be able to write a good sentence tomorrow because it won't. none of this is going to matter if I can't. Uh, see, I, you and I have known each other for a long time and, and mm -hmm. be good friends, but I never have talked to you about what your advance was for Prague. So I'm surprised to know that it was, as you say, something that made you very happy, right? So we were just talking uh, with Oscar um, about the pressure that an advance can put on a writer. So you were on tour and this book was doing well, but you were still feeling the pressure because you're like, oh my God, I got a bigger advance. It should be more. Is that fair to say? Is that what you're saying? No, 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 no. Oh. Sorry. Let me, let me, let me clarify. The advance, I, I never thought the advance should be more. I was like, no, no, no not the advance was more. You're yeah. thinking like it needs to do well to us to earn out or make this advance worthwhile so that my publisher will be happy. Right. So here's the thing. So Prague was published in 2002, I guess. And I got a nice advance, and the book did well. But according to my royalty statements, I have never earned out. <laughs> right? Well, yeah, we were talking about that. Well, welcome to the club, pal. Right. So, and then I've got I've got five, five, six, five, whatever books after that, um, and I have never earned out. 
So I don't know if they're making any money off me or not. The evidence suggests they're not. Uh, so, yeah, if you start to look at all those statements, I, I try to sort of delete them before I read them as a rule. So, you know, you're talking about the value of wanting to write a good sentence tomorrow and at the same time having this refrain of critical reception kind of as background noise, your novels have been exceptionally well received. You know, your last book, The Tragedy of Arthur, was on the cover of the New York Times Book Review. But there was one review by Michiko Kakatani for the Egyptologist that began a lovely relationship between the two of you. And I wonder how you think that early success or really any success at all affects the way that critics look at a writer and, and how you think about that producing a second book and a third book with everyone suddenly watching when you got to write your first book, you know, kind of in the privacy of, of anonymity. The pressure I felt, I guess, looking back at it's a long time now, it's funny how fast you go from like promising up and comer to wizened old man of letters. But, um, <laughs> I know, Arthur, I feel like we're just starting out, but the evidence seems to be to the contrary. <laughs> hey, how do you guys, how do you guys know each other? How, how long have you known each other just for our listeners who don't have, and I don't have this context. Probably this 15 is- years ago, yeah. uh, Wit was nice enough to have me, you know, come to Kansas City for one of the events he was managing there, I think. I think it was for the Egyptologist. So that puts it more than 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, yeah, the evidence suggests... Uh, but you came back things. also for Tragedy of Arthur, I think, and maybe, I mean, you've been... You're well-loved well, in Kansas City. Okay, well, all right, so here's the... <laughs> so here's a good story about what this can feel like sometimes. Um, I came to Kansas City on book tour, and um, Rainy Day Books had me speaking in, like, a Baptist temple or something with... Unity Temple on the plaza. Unity temple. It's like, I don't know, 15,000 seats. It felt like an arena. How many people can that thing hold? It's big. Maybe maybe at least a couple thousand people. Yeah, something like that. A couple thousand people. And the same night, they had Jennifer Weiner at the store. And, <sighs> and you know, I had like six people at the Baptist Temple. And Jennifer Weiner, of course, had, them, you know, standing room only in the store and then people outside desperate to get in. So it's very easy to realize you are not a big deal no matter what any of this stuff says. Um, <laughs> so, and there's reminders all over the place that there are writers more popular, you know, and you know, you go on, sometimes I was on book, my very first book, I remember I was on book tour and almost everywhere I went, I was two days behind Ethan Hawke, who had just published his novel. And the bookstore owners were like, God, it was amazing. You know, we had like, we've never had an event like that. You know, there were people hanging from the rafters. And then of course, <laughs> I feel like there should be a law against (laughs) famous actors publishing books. It's just not fair. Or they have to donate the entire advance to like some like old old folks home for writers, you know, like they used to have for sailors where they can can go and retire, you know, in case we didn't make any money while we were doing this during our lives. Exactly. Needless to say, the rafters were secure for all of my book events after Ethan Hawke. But um, my first deal, which was for Prague, was for a single book. So the pressure that I was feeling as I was on tour and was writing my next book was, wow, I hope I can sell another book. I hope that this one does well enough that they will pay me another advance. Um, And also within that was the sort of pressure of like maybe a real author, whatever that is, isn't supposed to take the advance because like some idiot I had read somewhere that Updike refused advances. 
So I was like, oh, maybe I'm not even supposed to have an advance if I know what I'm <laughs> a serious literary person. So then after that, I signed a deal for two books, um, a book that I had written, The Egyptologist, and a book that I had not written that I didn't know what it was going to be. And so now suddenly I've got an advance for a book. I've gone from an advance for a book that I have finished to an advance for a book that I have finished plus a book I have never even thought of. And that has a certain amount of pressure attached to it. But by the time that contract was finished, you know, I've got like a mortgage and kids and nursing schools and whatever else to pay for. So then I took the next contract for uh, two books that didn't exist. So I'm not complaining. This is incredibly lucky. I got to be a writer who lived off of advances. This is, you know, as I said, this is winning a lottery ticket. However, the process does feel a little nerve wracking as you're looking at two books that don't exist yet and realizing if I don't, if I don't do them well, I won't make my advance back. And if I don't do them at all, I've been paid upfront for a product that I don't have to sell. So did you do a one book deal or a two book deal for love marriage? It's a two book deal. So you got a book that you're owed. Yeah. Maybe we could talk a little bit about the, the uh, process. Yeah. Look, we're trying to give the, a little bit of inside of baseball to, to the writers out there who haven't maybe done books yet or but want to, you know, or maybe we'll scare them off by talking about it, honestly. <laughs> but, you know, like this is common. You do a two book deal and then the second book is not there. And, you, and, and, and I had to have multiple extensions for my second book, The King of Kings County. Because uh, just the kind of thing that Arthur was talking about, and I, I remember exactly that kind of pressure. Like, oh my God, I've made it, and now I'm going to not make it because I can't write the second book. Right. Um, and there was there was a moment when my editor said to me, it was in the winter. I'd just gotten married. The same thing you're talking about, Arthur. Like, you know, like I, I feel like I got to provide, blah blah blah, or at least you know, my my wife was making a lot more money than I was. But um, and he was like, look, we need this book by October. And I was like, okay, you know, I had 250 pages to write and I just had to do it. And that was the end. He was like, that's the end. No more extensions. We're finishing. And then I, I managed to do it. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's when you start to feel like, geez, I guess I'm a writer now. <laughs> so, Suki, you're, you're, uh, do you want to talk about your situation? I mean, like, not really, but also, no. sure. <laughs> Does anyone ever really want to talk about this? I remember having a conversation with one of my former colleagues um, and just remembering sort of the place I had been in when I took that two-book deal, which I was really, um, I really needed the money. And um, I sort of was kicking myself because I really missed the anonymity of writing and no one knowing that I'm doing it, sort of being a, a sneaky thing that I just get to do alone. And he sort of said to me, don't forget, you know, young, poor Sugi needed the money. It is okay that you took it. And I mean, it really was sort of, um, it was about to be a a situation where, you know, my agent was calling my publisher and saying, she really needs the check to pay her rent. And I was fortunate also, I mean, I have to acknowledge, I was fortunate that I I have a family that I could have called up my family and said, could you, could you spot me a couple months? But I just sort of in terms of pride, really did not want to do it. I had just moved to New York. I was in my second stint of graduate school. And um, yeah, so I think, you know, going back, I sold those books right before the economy, before the market crashed. And I think now the environment is very different. And I suspect that if those same things were on the market now, I probably wouldn't have that opportunity. So I feel really fortunate. I think I'm also not sure that it's the ideal way for me to write. I'm 
have been through a few editors. I'm fortunate to be working right now at someone I really like who's given me a lot of helpful feedback. My book has been through so many iterations. I'm trying to remember who said this. Um, I want to say it was maybe Elizabeth McCracken or Rebecca Johns or, I don't know, one of my friends who I talk to a lot about writing who sort of said, um, don't take so long to write your book that you're sort of a different person at the end of the time that you're writing it than you were when you started it. And I think I'm, I'm a very different person now um, than I was when I sold those books. And it has been very strange. Um, and yet at the same time, how could nothing else could have happened because this is what happened. So here I am um, plugging away. Do you prefer, Arthur, to have like the contract already for the book or to be in a situation where you're writing it basically on spec or have finished a contract with a, with a company and, and then like maybe they have right of first refusal, which means they can look at the book first? I mean, which is better for you? Well, I have a longstanding relationship with um, Random House, Little Random, I guess the House of Random Penguins or whatever we're called nowadays. Um, <laughs> they went with Penguin Random, right? And right. So it wasn't no, you ate penguin. my original is, publishing house. We, yeah, we share an imprint. So I've been with them from the beginning and I'm on my third editor uh, and I'm, I've never moved. So and I've had a contract. Since I sold Prague, I have always had a contract with them for something coming. Actually, that's not true. Sorry. Since I sold my second book, I've had a contract for something coming. And I generally have – I don't know. It's all I've known and I've been very comfortable with it. And it's made me feel desired and good even if my numbers – all numbers go like entropy style in only one direction. Um, I'm – I am happy to be at Random I'm really happy to be at Random House and to have a deal with them. Um, at the same time, as the years have passed, I have I have continued to hold on to a kind of a lottery ticket, but it's a different one in that now I don't I don't only write novels for a living. I write uh, TV and film as well, and it's a whole other way of being creative and a whole other way of looking at the economics of how you support yourself as a writer. Yeah, that's one of the reasons we wanted to ask to have you on because, I mean, you are really rare. I mean, uh, both Suki and I have academic jobs. You know, we teach in creative writing programs. We go to AWP. We do all that academic stuff. And you are a writer who, unless I missed a teaching stint somewhere in there, has been just a writer, you know, ever since Prague came out. Um, You know, what are the advantages of that, I guess? And how do you do it? Maybe part of it is the TV and and movie stuff. Um, could you talk about like why you chose to do that, you know, and how it's uh, sure. Well, so, so as I said, you know, the first part of the, my career was, you know, everything just was lucky. I just there's no way around it. There's a lot of luck involved, and I had enough luck involved in how fast I was writing and what I was going to get paid in advances that I didn't need to do anything else. So that's that is a. Um, there's no way around it. That is just a lucky bullseye of a thing to have happen. And so as long as it lasted, I was delighted to be there when it couldn't last anymore. And the question of what, you know, now what kind of writer am I going to be? How am I going to be a, a writer that supports himself? I looked for jobs in which I would just write more. It just to me seemed more, I don't know, more like my skills that if I was going to write, I was going to learn how to write something else that somebody would pay for um, <laughs> rather than like rather ditch than, digging or, you know, well, tree or, trimming or, or teaching or teaching other people how to write. So right. you're, you're not wrong. I did one. I did one summer writer's workshop in Indiana teaching for, I guess, I think it was like a week. And I think everybody felt like, well, that was nice. Let's not do that again. We don't need him. <laughs> we don't need him doing that to us. We have. 
people who are good at this. So I really haven't taught. I have I have written, and again, it was very lucky. I got you know through friends who had done well in that business. I got into learning how to write TV by writing TV, and then from writing TV to to writing so writing TV for other people, and then trying to write TV for myself, which is not unlike not unlike writing a novel, although it's very different, of course, in a lot of ways, and writing feature films, both on my own ideas and being hired to, you know, rewrite somebody else's script or to work on someone else's idea. And writing a feature film is not unlike writing a short story, although there are obviously a lot of differences. For you, it's been a mix of first, just you were able to live as a literary writer. And now you're still working on a novel. I know now, but you're also uh, engaged with television industry and movies. I wonder, is it easier today? For, I mean, it seems to me like more and more writers are doing this, particularly because of the explosion of content on Netflix and um, other other venues, and and also multi uh, chapter, you know, TV series. Is do you think that is? I mean, that's sort of what Bloodline was. So. Uh, are there more opportunities in the TV world now than, say, when we were first coming out in the early 2000s? I think so. I think there's – so there's more demand for writers. That's true. There's also – there are more writers. Um, and, you know, it's – there is a career track for people who didn't screw around writing prose, who just learned how to write scripts properly and how to work on TV properly. And and there's no shortage of, of those people. Um, the advantage that that we have – is that we have a certain brand name that does, and this is a dirty little secret, does command a small amount of respect uh, <laughs> out west. So, you know, people like us have written and produced under our own names vast, relatively speaking, vast quantities of writing that other people have paid money to read. And that has got a kind of like high class stink about it out in Hollywood that um, they don't want necessarily like that stuff that you wrote but they like the idea that you're you have written and you are bringing some kind of panache to whatever you get hired to do um it it opens doors i think having you know it's kind of a loss leader really um to have written a novel is is definitely something that opens doors to meetings and agents and studios in hollywood so have you ever written a screenplay I haven't. Um, I have some very, very good friends who work in television and film in Hollywood, and they've said something similar, Arthur, to what you just said. Um, they're always sort of saying, but you wrote a book. It's it's a, it's a thing that people out here care about. Um, they'll respect you. They'll respect that work if you come out here. But it, it feels to me like a very different thing. I mean, I love I love watching um, watching television and film narrative and thinking about how it might work. It does seem to me like I'd have to learn a different set of chops. How about you? Have you written any? No, I I haven't. I mean, you know, between teaching and trying to write books, it's really hard to try to imagine adding. I mean, I think that's why it's possible if you're not teaching to do that. Uh, It just seems so risky to me. Um, I've had so many friends who make stuff that doesn't get made. I mean, Arthur's been able to get stuff made and I'm sure you have many things that don't get made. Um, oh yeah, it's. I mean, it, it is. It is a. Um, you're going to make more. You're going to produce more material than you're going to be able to sell, um, and the target is always moving. And there's there's all kinds of economic risk. You're not wrong about that, um, but it's you know you're you're in the business of selling writing, so you try to figure out what it is people want plus what it is you can tolerate writing that you'll actually enjoy. It is a new set of chops for sure, and it doesn't. At least you know for me, I was learning new tricks in midlife and i i won't say that it came with super 
fast ease or, or being supernatural to me. It wasn't. And I still, I think I often find myself questioning, geez, that seems like a script written by a novelist, not by somebody who <laughs> who writes. Well, there is a tradition of this. I mean, I remember in my old literary history books, listening you know, to stories about uh, Fitzgerald and Faulkner yep. working in Hollywood. And that, and that and was failing. during this. And failing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, I don't have a story particularly about Faulkner. I just have a theory that the reason, because I've read, I've read some of the like sort of uh, you know, in the same history as this sort of excerpts of a Fitzgerald script. And there's like a paragraph stage direction about like what the character's thinking as he drinks. And it's like, that's <laughs> nobody that doesn't do anybody any good. So it was really a question of Fitzgerald just being like, well, if I come here and, you know, I, don't, I just write a Fitzgerald story, it'll be like a movie. And it is it doesn't work. So I think I think you really have to be willing to do something very different than when you are writing prose, which is you have to be willing to collaborate. And what that really, really means is you have to be way more willing to have somebody say, no, do it again, it's wrong. Or, you know what, I'm going to give it to somebody else to finish it because I don't like what you did. Or that's a great idea you've got. I'm going to have it written by somebody who will write it stupider. (laughs) Uh, And if you're not game for that, uh, it's going to be very painful. And Fitzgerald, I know, drank himself silly. Yes, he was already an alcoholic, but I think you, I think it was probably very hard for him to be like, well, I'm Jeff Scott Fitzgerald. What are you doing to my work? But it's, it's a different business, and you don't get to keep your work like that for the most part. So it's good to be a writer of something else at the same time in which you really have control over it. And then, you know, the biggest chop you have to learn is when I'm writing prose, it's mine. When I'm writing for the screen, I'm part of a team, and it may end up even with my name on it, or it might not, but... I don't get final vote on anything. Well, speaking about uh, you learning uh, how to write in different genres, um, your last novel, which is a book that I really love, Tragedy of Arthur, uh, you wrote an entire Shakespearean play for, which has been performed. uh, Tell me if I'm getting anything wrong. Um, And I wondered if you could just talk to us a little bit about that book and maybe read a passage that's about the writing process, because it's a book that's very much about writing and money and how Run survives as a writer. So the book is, as far as one can tell, um, my memoirs and how it is that my family owns the only copy of a uh, putative Shakespeare play from 1591. And um, the book is the, the, the first modern publication of that play with an introduction my, written by me for Random House. Um, and explaining my family's history and why we have this play and and <laughs> and what happened to me and my family in relation to it, and it's about Shakespeare as a writer and me as a writer and envy and making a living and where your influences come from and and sort of the big what I've always thought of ever since I got started is sort of the big number one main question about every fiction writer, which is how much are you going to make up and how much are you going to steal from the life around you, your own autobiography, the lives of your loved ones, etc. Um, so I guess on that note, here's a here's a, a small passage from the middle. So this is um, this is about me, Arthur, my uh, uh, father, Donald, my twin sister, Dana, and my mother's uh, husband, Sil, Silvius. So Dana is the most important one here. She's my twin sister. When I think of how I became a writer, I do recall the countless occasions when my father told me something like, 
there is no higher calling for a man than to create things and to create worlds out of words as the highest form of creation. This seems like uh, likely psychology, obviously. It also equates writing with a sort of con job, building illusions with the reader's own imagination and then being far away when the pigeon realizes there's nothing real at all in the experience. But Dana's influence was different. She would, on occasion, talk to women in bars and, having decided that they weren't gay or gay enough, bring them to me after talking me up to them. She would introduce me as a writer. She described my labors sitting on our fire escape, going over my words again and again, stumbling in at dawn, exhausted and happy because I've managed in those long hours to write a few lines that reached to the heart of what it felt like to be a woman today, she said to the unbelievable hottie with the rack that just would not quit. Arthur sees that more clearly than any man I've ever known, said Dana. Okay, not true, obviously, not for a single instant, not in a single detail. I had written almost literally nothing at that point, and certainly nothing of any value, just some feeble efforts at mildly erotic science fiction. I never went out on our fire escape. The window was painted shut. (laughs) But I liked me in her version, and I aspired to it. I could not remember the last time I'd wanted my mother to be proud of me, probably not since Little League. Sylvia's approval had mattered, but only in more prosaic questions of masculinity, like, that's no way for a man to act, it was very harsh when spoken softly by Syl. I madly pursued my father's approval for many years with no result. But Dana's praise, I wanted and I could win. And that is the person who will shape you permanently. Oh, thank you very much. That's great. Well, thank you. I wondered if you could talk to us about... Um, about the book you're working on now, which you may not want to do, and also the way that it, it, what it's like to write now that you are a screenwriter to go to fiction. If, it, if screen, learning to do the screenwriting has affected the way that you write fiction. That is the um, question that keeps me up at night at the moment. Something has to keep me up at night, and that one seems to do it. So I learned to write fiction And I figured out how I liked to do it and what the process felt like and what standards I should use to determine whether something was good or not. Um, And that process, you know, went over 20 years, let's say. And then I started to get into screenwriting. And the main wrestling match in my own mind was the definition of good, really. And that was usually related to technical things such as um, plot and suspense and tension um, and the delivery of information to the audience. So a lot of stuff that honestly I never really thought about uh, <laughs> because I just felt like, you know, I, it's not like you don't have to have those things in a novel. It's just that it's just that whatever a particular author thinks is the right amount is, the, is in fact, in my world, is in fact the right amount. So if my novel is not as suspenseful as some other novel that I happen to love, that doesn't matter. That doesn't mean the novel doesn't work. And it'll be more suspenseful than Beckett. Exactly. (laughs) But then you get into screenwriting and you hear a lot of people being like, yeah, I'm not feeling the suspense or the stakes, which is a word that really just feels like uh, like somebody sticking a knife in me. Um, Well, that's uh, lucky because that means you haven't been teaching any workshops. You know, I just, it's more, I don't, it's a very interesting question because it's not like there aren't stakes in my fiction, I guess. I just literally never had to think about it because all I was doing was writing what I thought felt right to me. And by the end of it, if after 15 drafts and 30 times of reading it out loud to myself, it still felt right, then 
God damn it, it was right. But if I held a script to that standard, I would still be facing studio executives, the people who are going to pay to make this come alive, shaking their heads saying, no, it's not right. It doesn't work. It's not good enough. Um, so I really get other people's voices in my head out of necessity much more strongly in screenwriting than I do in uh, prose writing. And that comes down to you know very technical things like, is it are the scenes short enough? Is there... Are there enough scenes in which the variation of the number of characters? Then you get into like, is it is it? Are you making it too expensive? Um, right. A screenwriter, a TV writer, I, an older man who taught me a lot and, and really is very smart about this stuff and very experienced, said the law of thermodynamics of television writing is that eventually, by the final draft, all of your scenes are interior kitchen day. <laughs> <laughs> No matter where it started. Um, and there is something to that because the, the actual process of making a TV show is the process of running out of money before your scene comes up. And it's just easier to do it in the kitchen. Is it easy to keep these voices out of your head when you go back to the prose? Yeah. So that's the other thing that keeps me up. And I just as I'm about to fall asleep from the first question, I wake up to that one. Um, it's different. So I'm writing a novel right now. Um, and just like you said, Sugi, you know, I've been at it for way too many years, this particular novel. It's entirely a different process than my previous novels. And I am a largely different person in a lot of ways from when I started. So I just threw away a third of it. And part of that throwing away a third of it was, which I've really never done before, um, was voices in my head saying, you know what, this, this doesn't, this doesn't hold together in a way that people want to read. And so I've, I do feel a little bit like I've lost, um, at least temporarily, or at least on this book, if nowhere else, I have lost a little bit of my spine um, to say, no, no, I'm, I'm sure I like it. And that's good enough. And I think that's possible that that comes out of, a, out of dabbling in screenwriting. So maybe teaching is the way to go. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you know, Arthur, that my last book took me a eight years to write. And I think, and I talked to many, many writers during that period of time looking for consolation who all said they had a book like that. And I I think it just happens to, to all writers at some point, you know, I just think it's, it's too hard of a craft to have it not happen. I'll take that. Thank you. I don't think, I don't (laughs) think you made a wrong turn on the, on the screenwriting. I don't think that's your problem. There may Uh, be others. Thank you. Yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> this is great. I didn't even know I was going to get therapy today. This is fantastic. There you go. <laughs> so, Arthur, before we let you go, any more career advice for our writer listeners and also selfishly for me? Wow. Uh, well, it doesn't sound like you need any. Yours is yours is underway. Um, I, you know, I'm so far away from the beginning of my career now that I don't know how careers start anymore. Um, and it, there is no there is no single path through this business. Um, so the only advice that I'm sure is accurate is read a lot, write a lot and enjoy what you write. And the rest of it is a business and social problem that you will sort out. But if you're not reading and writing a lot, and you're especially if you're not liking what you write, nothing that comes after is going to be worth it, no matter how good it is. So as I said, I've won, I've won lotteries. I've been lucky. I've had great things happen to me, you know, financially and critically. And I've also had not such great things happen to me. But when great things happen to me, they only feel good in proportion to the fact that I feel like I'm writing well 
or writing something that I like at the same time. Arthur, thanks so much for being on the show. And we would like to encourage our listeners to go out and read uh, your work. I mean, The Tragedy of Arthur, I just think is fantastic. And we, we mentioned Egyptologists in Prague, but I would also include The Song Is You and uh, Angelica. Terrific books. Thank you. Um, and we're looking forward to the next one. Uh, you and me both, baby. <laughs> Thanks so much, Arthur. Thank you, guys. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. I'm Kevin Coder, an intern producer for the podcast along with Aaron Saxon. One thing Aaron and I have been doing is monitoring the hell out of our social media accounts, so we wanted to say thank you to some of our listeners who have been tweeting and posting about the podcast. That includes Tucker Lieberman, who cited the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast with James Traub in his piece in the publication Jewish Boston about defending transgender rights, Patrick Pierce, who posted about our episode on literary color lines, and finally two podcasters, the Word Manifesto Podcasting Company and Jack Rossiter-Munley, the co-host of an excellent literary podcast, Close Talking. Thanks to all these folks and to those great listeners we haven't yet had a chance to mention. You can find these posts at FNF Talk on Twitter and FNF Pod on Facebook. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction backslash non backslash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the fiction nonfiction podcast page is listed under the news tab. Happy reading.